0: so we are on page, the bottom of page 4 since now you have the reading Imam Zariyata then continues and says that when these thoughts had occurred to me and penetrated my being, and eh, these thoughts are that I can know, is there any such thing as knowledge, if there is nothing that I know with certainty, then okay I have two tools of knowledge, sense perception and my akal and now I know that my sense perception also cannot yield certain knowledge because it is subject to error. Nor can my akal yield certain knowledge because it is also subject to the possibility of error. So when I came at this impasse out of all of my struggling in front of getting somewhere, I realized I was getting nowhere. After all of that struggling, I ended up with two tools and I lost one, I lost the other. So then he says that when these thoughts had occurred to me and penetrated my being, I tried to find some way of treating my unhealthy condition, but it was not easy. I couldn't figure out how to handle myself. Such ideas can only be repelled by demonstration. The only way I can get out of it, I needed somebody to conclusively demonstrate to me the truth. And I had lost all my own reliance on my own ability to demonstrate and discover truth. But a demonstration needs a combination of first principles, you need some basic truth that you agree upon, that, on the, that you believe in certainty. That on the basis of that, somebody may demonstrate a further thing to you. But I have nothing, no first principles that I believe in certainty. Since this is not admitted, means since I did not have any such thing that I accepted, however, it is impossible to, so then it is impossible to make that demonstration. Nobody could demonstrate anything to me. The disease was baffling and lasted almost two months. So how long did this process take? We don't know. It took some months of his life, right, to reach this stage. And then when he ended up on this point where he was nowhere, he remained stuck in this for two months, trying to figure out a way to help, trying to get out. He couldn't do it. During which I was a skeptic in fact, though so not in theory and not an outward expression. What does it mean? In reality, I had lost my imam. Outwardly, I still did all of the amal of iman. I was still teaching and practicing and everything. And in theory, it means that I had not committed myself to the theory of atheism. I was not a committed atheist. In theory, that that is also. Because I'm in a complete crisis, I cannot even say that is sure for certainty. So, I ended up in complete skepticism. So, then what happens? He says that at length, and fault Allah subhanahu cured me of my illness. My being was restored to health and an even balance and equilibrium. The necessary truths of the intellect became once more accepted, and I regained confidence in their certain and trustworthy character. So how did this happen? So here Mamma shares with us how this happened and he says that this did not come about by systematic demonstration that somebody gave me some conclusive proof or argument And it didn't come back by marshaled argument that somebody brought all types of evidences to me to convince me of certainty. But it came by a light which Allah SWT cast into my breast. That light is the key to the greater part of knowledge. Whoever thinks that the understanding of things divine rests upon strict proofs has in his thought narrowed down the wideness of Allah SWT's mercy. And he says that when Sayyidina al was asked about this, verse Allah subhanahu wa Surah al-A'am, Surah number 6, verse 125, That whomsoever Allah subhanahu desires and wishes, that Allah subhanahu should guide them, islam And then Allah subhanahu will expand their breast for the deen of Islam. This we explained to you once in a ayam. Then Sayyidina when he was asked about that, he says, it is a light which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala casts into a heart. It is a nur that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala casts into the heart. Sayyidina Rasulullah S. 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 said, that it al When the nur comes into the heart of a person, in sharaha, then that person's breast becomes expanded. And another verse of Qur'an Allah subhanahu said in Surah Al-Zumma, verse 22, a faman sharahan lahu that whomsoever Allah Taala has expanded their breast lil Islam from the Deen of Islam, for whoa al anuur min then that person will be on a nur, on a light from their rab. Alright. Then the Sahaba asked the Prophet Sallallahu that what is the sign that that person has received that nur? So Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, "Inabatu illa darul jilud, darul chulud." With the Jafi and darul ghurur, that the person's entire yearning is for the eternal life of the akhirah, and a person is withdrawn from darul hurur, from the abode of deception, means the dunya. Okay, now what happened here after these two months? Because some people may feel the university student may feel, but that's no answer. Actually, this is the answer Imam Azhar is saying. That you have to strive with all sincerity for the capital T truth. But the capital T truth can never be attained through your striving and effort alone. Capital T truth can never be attained through intellectualization, rationality alone. Capital T truth can only be attained through the hidayah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if there is a person today, what is the impact of this? the important impact of this if there's still today a someone who is a skeptic or an atheist or an agnostic then Imam Ghazali would suggest to that person you have to try harder and you have to try so hard that you bring yourself to this point where you are left with nothing and you may linger there like I did I Ghazali did for two months and if you keep trying, keep striving, and you're sincere, then Allah subhanahu himself will guide you. Because that level of yaqeen, that level of certainty is not going to come through human demonstration, through rational intellectual argument. That level of certainty can only come from the nur that Allah subhanahu sends into a person's other. And in this particular case, it's again not circular reasoning, because Imam Zahra is not using the verse to... Prove what happened to him This happened to him He is making a claim That I experienced this nur I experienced shara sadar This is the way I got of it That inexplicably without demonstration Without argument My breast was expanded And my heart felt with certainty More than 2 plus 2 equals 4 My kalm felt with certainty That Allah is true and then after himself experiencing that, then he finds a corroboration for that in Qur'an. That yes, actually what happened to me is what Allah Ta'ala says in Qur'an. That when Allah Ta'ala wishes for someone, that he wants to guide them to the deen of Islam, then Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala casts a nur into his breast. In law So that means this is the real answer at this ultimate, ultimate level of hidayah will come from Allah SWT now if a person doesn't push themselves to this level right, Allah Taala can give hidayah without having all of these doubts Allah Taala may give hidayah we may in this room, in this, right now that we're listening we may have a yakin in deen of Islam but we didn't go through this and while Allah is not prescribing this and many people will try to tell you that no, no, if you really want to believe in Islam you should question everything, be skeptical about everything, investigate everything, right? That's not necessarily the way to do it. But Imam ghazali's life story and his spiritual autobiography is a proof and a testament that okay, even if somebody does do that, investigate every corner, dive into every depth, probe every abyss, meet the Christian, the Jew, the Magian, every sect of Islam. If somebody were to do that, like he did, then you would again reach the truth if you had sincerity. So that's why they call Imam al-Ghazali Huddatul-Islam. That he is the very proof of the deen of Islam. Because if a person sheds everything that they inherited on authority from parents and teachers and strips themselves of everything such that they are left with their naked humanity and then they seek Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they wanted to discover Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they wanted to find Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu will find them. He is of Islam. That if somebody says you have to do it, we say Imam Ghazali already did it. And that's why he wrote this work. That I did that. You don't need to do it. He wants to describe his journey so that we don't prescribe this for ourselves. Because as he said, those who try to swim these waters, the majority will drown. It's only the minority that reach the shore. So this is what happens. It's not a cop-out. This is honest reality. That this is, if you want to push yourself to that threshold, then ultimately, penultimate,ly that certainty will come from Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala. and that is, Allah Taala calls it nur in Quran. nur. it's a nur. This is spiritual light. It's not physical light. It's not photons and energy and lumens. No, no, no. This is nur, spiritual light, cast by Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala Himself into the sadr and kalm, the breast and heart of that person who wanted Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Imam Al-Ghazali, who had just explained a few pages before, what his mayar of yakin was, the most highest definition of yakin, Imam Al-Ghazali is testifying that that nur of hidayah brings the person to that yakin. So don't think that that belief on faith doesn't have yakin. Belief from Hidayah doesn't have yakin. Imam al is establishing that that belief from Hidayah, from Allah subhanahu wa is in itself what is really yaqeen. So he comes out of it in this way. So he says that the point of these accounts Oh... So Sayyidina Rasulullah so said about this noor that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created insan in dhulma spiritual obscurity not any type of physical darkness in spiritual obscurity and then sprinkled upon them some of his noor. So does it doesn't mean that we are pieces of Allah subhanahu that Allah noor is a piece of him. When I don't like to use such examples, but just to clear the misunderstanding, if somebody shines a flashlight on you, and the light of the flashlight comes on your shirt, does your shirt become a piece of the flashlight? Is your shirt one with the flashlight? Does your shirt have union with the flashlight? No! That light was ascending from the flashlight, which is rare, something distinct and differentiated, to your shirt, which is something other than a flashlight, which is distinct and differentiated. So the fact that some people misunderstand this also, and sometimes the translators also, I have to keep doing this because their, their feel in the English is because they have the wrong understanding. So this sprinkling of nur doesn't mean we're all pieces of Allah SWT. doesn't mean like that. This is why the Arabic is so beautiful when our Mashaikhs say, Wadidat. It's Wadid. It's something that is sent from Allah ta'ala it's something that is sent from Allah it's a sending, an emanation that descends from not Allah subhanahu ta'ala himself something that Allah ta'ala sends Allah has that power if I have the power to speak and utter syllables that they reach your ear does that mean I enter your ear so if I have such a power that I can issue waradab so to speak all of us have, right? so do you don't think Allah subhanahu ta'ala can send nur yes he is an nur it's not his own particles that are coming. So Allah ta'ala sends nur and hidayah into the heart and the breast. So that light at certain time gushes forth, continuing the hadith uh, the finishing the finishing. Imam Zai says that from that nur must be sought an intuitive understanding, the fitut to saleem the tafakqu, the understanding of deen and all matters pertaining to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and deen are actually going to come from that nur that comes in the kalb and the sadr. Not that activity that goes in the akr. This is a different type of understanding. That nur at certain times guesses from the spring of divine generosity. What does this mean? The karam and fadl of Allah SWT. Wallahu This is Allah Ta'ala is of immense fadl and karam. But He gives it yutihi man yasha to whomsoever He wants. And for it one must watch and wait. You must hope and pray and watch and wait for Allah taala to send that nur. If you find yourself in this level of skepticism. And you can say Sayyidina Ibrahim AS was waiting and watching for Allah taala to send that nur. Oh and Sayyidina Rasulullah he says, oh, what was he doing in the mountain in Hira? That same watching and waiting, waiting for that nur. Actually, Sayyidina Rasulullah had that nur already, was waiting for the zuhur or the izhar for the manifestation of that nur. As we explained to you last night, Allah we also have that nur already, and we're waiting for the unveiling and opening of that nur, like the gardener watches and waits for the bud to open into a flower. So you have to nurture that aspect. It's not intellectual like today. So then Imam al writes that Sayyidina Sallallahu said that in the days of your age, your Rabb has guts of favor, then place yourselves in the way of the means, they're certain, timings, there's certain actions, there's certain places, there's certain people. There's certain times, there's certain actions, there's certain places, there's certain people that attract the puzzle and karam of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we should put ourselves in those showers of Allah ta'ala's In those times and actions and places and people. Then we have more chance of getting that nur. Then Imam writes that so the point of these accounts is that the task is perfectly fulfilled when the quest is taken up, the journey is striven, stroven for, you strive for the journey up to the stage of seeking what is not shot, sought. In other words, Allah ultimately cannot be sought and found. You can seek Allah, but it is you who will be found. So you're actually seeking the unseekable in that sense. That Allah's counsel is ultimately unknowable, but He will ultimately make Himself known to you. That's what Imam are is saying. And if you don't do that, for first principles are not solved. So the same thing if a person said, okay, I want to investigate what this means, that opposites can't coexist, that something cannot be affirmed and denied at the same time. That's why even if they call it self-evident truths, what the self-evident truth means, if you let go of everything, it will be self-evident to you. And if you try to take up your intellectual, rational arguments and try to discover that, it may not become evident to you. So then, just like this, a self-evident truth, so the self-evident truth and reality of the existence of one Allah SWT will come to a person when they lose everything. And then he says that if what is present is sought for, it becomes hidden and lost. If you try to use your akal and journey on your akal to find Allah Subhanahu Taala, then the reality of Allah Taala may escape you. You may be obsc- may be obscured and hidden and lost to you because you're seeking using the wrong means. For example, if I was to use the incorrect mean, I would take a flashlight and try to look at your lungs. Using the flashlight will make sure I never get to see your lungs. I have to use the X-ray machine to see your lung. So if I try to discover Allah SWT with the flashlight, it's not going to happen. But when Allah sends his nur onto the heart of a person, it's like the X-ray becomes opened up. That which can only be discovered by the X-ray can never be sought by the flashlight no matter how robust intellectually you make that flashlight, no matter how much strategies you have as to how to shine that flashlight, you will never be able to find it. And it will become lost because you have started with the misconception that it is attainable through the flashlight, so you may endlessly, continually try, or even worse, you may give up because what you seek will not be found in that method. And you will incorrectly think that it doesn't exist because I didn't find it. How foolish for a person to come to atheism, which is the assertion that Allah Ta'ala doesn't exist, on this basis because I couldn't find that knowledge. Or that you couldn't find that knowledge, doesn't mean that knowledge doesn't exist. Science won't accept this. I can't find the Higgs-Boson particle. Does that mean it doesn't exist? <laughs> hmm? I, using my skills and tools and abilities, would never be able to find such a thing. <laughs> and if I said that my inability to discover it means it doesn't exist. Allah <laughs> So this is what Imam al Ghazar said his first part. When however a person seeks what is sought, and they are not accused, then they are not accused of falling short in the seeking of what is sought. So he was seeking Allah Subhanahu even in those two months when he had no tools. He had reached that stage where he had no I, no wasila, no asbab, no, no means, and he's still seeking that means. If you think about it, it must have been seeking from his heart, because he gave up seeking from sense perception, gave up seeking from akal. What was left to him was that heart. So when he sought Allah Taala from his heart, Allah Taala sought his heart. Allah Ta'ala cast his breast open in Sharaf al-sadr and cast a nur into his skull. Then Imam Ghazali begins a second journey. Second crisis is going to take place. You think that it would end right here. No, there's another one. <laughs> second crisis takes place. That now that I know with certainty that Allah Ta'ala is true, I want to get inner certainty. I want to feel that truth. I want to feel Urab, I want to feel magnify. I want to intimately know Allah Subhanahu. Wa ta'ala. How am I going to do that, right? How am I going to do that? So then Imam Al says that okay, well there are other people who are seekers. Now I've become a seeker. I'm seeking Allah Subhanahu. Wa ta'ala. So there are other people who are seeking Allah Subhanahu. Wa ta'ala and broadly speaking, he identifies four categories of seekers in his time. So this is the next point that he says. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by his fadl and his qadam cured me of this disease, I came to regard the various seekers of this truth. So one is to believe now that the truth exists. And now you have to go out and find it. Right? As comprising four groups. Number one, mutakallimun the people of kalamah. Who are they? He's going to explain each one, but very who claim that they fire the exponents of thought and intellectual speculation. Here, we'll explain when he talks about Bataniya, the people of Talim, and believe in the infallible imams. the Ismailis then and now believe that whatever the Imam or the Prince says is certain. So that's their way of doing it. And how do I, I know certainty exists. Second, how do I find that certainty? So for them, whatever the Imam says is the certainty. That's it. Third, the philosophers, the philosophers felt that logic and demonstration and proofs and arguments and philosophical mm, proofs—that is what's going to be the tool used for certainty. In a sense, you can say he's looking for the tool now. Now he's come out of the first crisis that certainty, true belief in Allah Subhanahu. Wa ta'ala. Now the question is, what tool do I adopt to seek Allah Subhanahu, wa ta'ala, who I now know He certainly exists and is true? And fourth were the people of Tasawwuf. Who claim that they enter now this is also not a good translation here. Presence of Allah SWT doesn't mean this was actually it's called uh that's where this word Hazrat comes from by the way. This term of presence means that they feel the presence of Allah ta'ala, at all time, In other words, not only does Allah ta'ala exist, but Allah ta'ala is present. He is the real Allah Ta'ala is Hadr Nathar. Right? What does it mean? That Allah subhanahu is all-present, ever-present, all-seeing, ever-seeing. So the people of Tasawwuf say that we enter into a state of feeling where we feel that way. We feel Allah Ta'ala's presence. Not that we become one with Allah presence. We feel that presence of Allah subhanahu You will see today, people, they feel the presence of other beings. Right? if somebody walks in the room and they're your boss, you feel their presence, right? If the vice chancellor of the university walks on campus, people feel the presence. Hmm? And this day and age, people, because they don't have proper haya, one woman sits on the bus, all the men feel her presence. Hmm? A certain feeling, a kefiyat, comes over them. So the ahlet is so aware that we are always in this feeling in kefiyat that we are aware and feel the presence of Allah SWT. You can call that qurb in the language of Qur'an. They feel the intimate, near presence of Allah ta'ala. You can call ma'ayyat in language of Qur'an. huwa ma'akum They feel it. We know it, but they feel it. This is what Imam Ghazanjah is saying. Now that I know I want to feel, what is going to be the path and the tool through which I will feel what I know? There are four, four categories of seekers who are claiming the word he uses in Arabic is Talib, Talibin. Yes, he uses the Jamal Salim. Talibin, Asnaf of Talibin. Alright. So I said within myself, the truth cannot be outside means the truth cannot be sought and obtained outside these four classes. Because there's nobody else who is claiming that they can truly seek Allah Talla in His time. These are the people who tread the paths of the quest for truth. If the truth is not with any one of the four of them, then no point remains in trying to apprehend, understand, feel the truth. Know the truth exists, but I want to feel the truth. Just like me and you. We know that Allah Ta'ala is Kareeb. All of us know that right now. He says, Fa inni But how many of us can say we feel that Qurb? Well, that's the second step. We know that He has Mayat with us. How many of us feel His constant presence with us? So that's what Imam Zarathah is saying. So, uh, he wants it. He wants it all. He's a sincere talib. (laughs) He's not done yet. (laughs) He's not done yet. Okay. So, if the truth is not broken, there is certainly no point in trying to return to the level of naive and derivative belief. Now, I cannot accept an authority that any one of them have the truth. He's going back to the same method that got him out of the first crisis. I won't take this on authority. I am going to investigate it personally because I want to experience it personally. You all can accept on authority that Allah ta'ala is karib. That's still not going to help you to feel that kurb. Right? Imam al wants to experience himself. Since so the condition of being at such a level is that one should not know when it's there. In other words, he's saying that what they call ignorance is bliss. The only way authority will work for you is if you don't realize that you've accepted something on mere authority. The day you realize this that I actually don't experience and feel this myself, I just accept it on authority is the day that authority will no longer be of uh, any benefit or have any effect on you. When a a person comes to know that, that what I'm accepting is just authority, then the glass of his naive beliefs is broken. This is a breakage which cannot be mended. A breakage not to be repaired by patching or by reassembling the fragments. The glass must be melted once again in the furnace for a new start, and out of it another fresh vessel formed. So this is a very common literary style of Muhammad is writing tamthil and tashbih oh, 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 likenesses and similes, right? So this is what he's saying. And he's right, when you break the glass, you can't groove the pieces back together. You have to melt it entirely. So he's been melted entirely and now he wants to know how should I get myself forged in such a way that I don't come back to this and get broken and shattered when I found that it was just authority and hearsay. So he's seeking. I commence then with the science of theology, ilmu why does Imam Ghazali do this? So let me explain now the second journey. The first journey, the transition he made. The first journey was he was seeking what was unseekable, true, certain belief in the reality of the existence of Allah SWT. That got done that Allah Taala sent the Nura of Hidayah to his heart. Now he is doing something else. He's seeking what is seekable. Who has the experience of that truth? How to experience that truth? So now he's on a different type of journey. Now he is seeking the seekable. He's trying to identify who is correct. Alright? And this is also the completeness of Imam al-Ghazali's approach. He had to do both things. He had to go through the first phase to reach the second phase. And he has to go to the second phase to be complete. All right. So, first group is the people of Ilm al-Kalam. What is Ilm al-Kalam? So, sometimes in English it is classical theology, dialectic theology. This was a formal movement that arose in 2nd and 3rd century hijri of the, deen, of the history of our deen. What was that? That was to formalize and formulate doctrines of belief, tenets, creed, akkadh, in order to refute and respond to doctrines of unbelief that were creeping in. What happened here with the people of Kalam felt that, okay, and initially, you didn't need this in the first century of Islam. But in the second and third century, there were certain people who were having incorrect beliefs. And that was a very subtle encroachment of incorrect beliefs. So they felt that, okay, and in order to equip the Mu'mineen and to make them armor-coated against the incorrect beliefs, we must lay out for them stepwise in manuals, Mutun of aqaid what exactly the right beliefs are. So they will be clear now that this is what is the right belief. So that articulation of the right belief, that was done through this process of ilmul quran. Then, the second part was that as each and every one of these wrong beliefs kept popping up, so then they said we must formally, completely refute each of those incorrect beliefs. That was also that articulation of the refutation is also called ilmul kalam. Then, they felt that we should try to refute them in a way that is universalistic. What does that mean to refute somebody on their own terms? So it was a responsive process. So if somebody was putting forth an incorrect belief using Aristotelian philosophy, so the ulama of kalam would refute that person on the basis of Aristotelian philosophy. So then sometimes ilmuqalaam even had philosophical arguments in it because they were trying to use the tools of the other to refute the other. Why would you do that? Today we would say just refute them from Quran and belief. Well, there were a couple of reasons for that. Number one, they weren't doing refutation in this sense, rah the fatwa of kufr. No, they were trying to articulate the refutation to guide those people out of the incorrect belief. Now, those people who are on the incorrect belief, they believe in Aristotle's philosophy over and above the Quran. You recite the Quran to them; it's not a proof for them. They are coming to you and saying, no, I believe in this philosophy because I believe Aristotle's words are proof. And you are bringing the Qur'an. So they realize that we cannot guide them out of this. So because they wanted to do hiday, they wanted to guide those people out, they spoke to them on their terms. They spoke to them using their language. They said, okay, you tell us, what do you believe in? They said, we believe these are our first principles. Okay, we pick up your principles and we'll use that to show you you're wrong. This is what they were doing. Now, many people today, they look back and say, oh, these ulama using philosophical arguments, what's the matter of them? They didn't have yakin and imam, didn't believe in Quran, they engaged in these things. It's not like that. They were addressing people. This is even what we say is called muqtadahal. Hmm? That's it, real proper speech is to talk according to the need. And these people, they needed to be guided and taken out. Our Shaykh says, So yes, they made their only theory by articulating Islamic Aqidah through philosophical means. But they were doing it for a particular purpose. And amazingly, you will see that these ulama of Kalam were absolutely successful. Alhamdulillah, when we are in the madrasa, we studied some of these historical false groups, they don't even exist anymore. The ulama were so successful. There are no kalamiyyah, jahmiyyah, even Mottazil, a real Mottazil, are not even around anymore. It was a completely successful effort. Allah Ta'ala blessed them and granted them his kubuliyyah. But this was also a claim they were making, that okay, we will through ilmul kalam bring you to certain, to experience the certainty of the deen. And why did Imam Ghazali go there first? Okay, now let me give you an example, just so you understand, what is a a Kalam argument? So a person will say uh, that everything that is created must have a creator. Everything that is created must have a creator. Those people say, yes, this is what we say. This is what we accept. Everything that is created must have a creator. So Kalam argument is that how far can you take it? Can you make it an infinite regression? Because if everything that has a creator before, it, well, but that's also created, then has a creator before. So it's not possible, according to all philosophers, your philosophical principles, that something can have a negative, a retroactively infinite regression. It has to stop somewhere. So there must be an origin. There must be an original creator, and that is the losfana tala. That's an example of a kalam argument. All right. It's very simple and simplified, but just to give you a bit of a flavor of some idea like that, right? You can take it of human creation, right? That, okay, the child must have had a mother, but the mother must have also had a mother, and she must have also had a mother. Uh, it could go on. It, if you don't believe in the way Allah created humanity, you will have to take it on forever. And rationality doesn't accept that this could go on forever. What came first, the chicken or the egg? This is how they phrase it, right? So, this is an example of the Kalam argument. Okay? Alright. So, they were claiming, basically, in the ulama of ilmul Kalam, that this is a way to bring a person to certainty. Why does Imam al-Ghazali commence with them? Why does he start with them? Because actually, now let me tell you something more about it, he was actually very well versed in ilmul Kalam. He was an alam, this was his field, this was closest to his area. So, it's only natural that he would go there first. So what does he do? Now how does he investigate? This is what we're going to call as academic integrity, intellectual honesty. This is also lessons for us. So I commenced then with ilm obtained a thorough grasp of it. I read the books of the authentic and authoritative mutakallimun. And to make sure I knew it well, I myself wrote some books on the subject. Hello,. Akbar! <laughs> And that's when you really know something. So I studied economics. I did a piece in economics. Then I went and I wrote a textbook on economics. And I showed the economists that textbook. And when they approved the textbook, then I said, okay, now I know economics. That's what he wants to do. Allah Akbar. This is also something for way back. If some of you, I don't think any of that old group is here, except for Asa Misma, that we explained to you knowledge and ideology. So what does it mean? This academic approach means that don't disagree with something until you understand it. And the ideological approach wants you to disagree with something even before you understand it. So we say, okay, can you use Zayf Hadith in Islam? Don't disagree with the muhaddithin's use of Zayf Hadith until you understand in detail why and when they did it. Ideology wants to tell you that no, no don't agree with their muhaditheen's use of Zayif without even understanding why they did it. Don't even give them a chance. Don't even understand the Hadith sciences. Just disagree. Or disagree on the basis of my one pamphlet. <laughs> right? The Imams are showing you, no, no, if you want to disagree with something, you have to understand it to the level you must read the books You of the sound people of that field so, and you must understand it so well that you can be articulate that field, then you can decide whether you agree or disagree with it. So then we say that first write a book on Hadith sciences that is accepted by the scholars of Hadith, and then tell me what your position is on the use of the Hadith or not. Allah <laughs> Okay. So then Imam was continues, but it was a, it, you know, the science was not ilm, it was a discipline of learning. I found which, though attaining its own aim, it was successful in its goal, that it was able to refute the other on its own terms, etc., etc., but it did not accomplish my goal, that I wanted to get the qurb and of Allah, I wanted to feel with certainty that being that I now knew to exist with certainty, its aim was merely to preserve the creed, it wouldn't say merely, its aim was solely and specifically to preserve the right creed which he is translating as orthodoxy and to defend it against the deviations of heretics now Allah s. sent to his ibad by the mouth of Sayyidina SWT through the mm, exposition of Sayyidina Wasallam in the Quran and the Hadith, a creed which is the truth and whose contents are on the basis of man's welfare in both religious and worldly affairs, but shaitan also sent through his wasawis to the wasawis of heretics, through the wasawis of heretics, things contrary to authentic orthodox belief. And many human, many human beings tended to accept his suggestions and almost corrupted the true creed for, it, for the adherence of Islam. So Allah brought into being these class of ulama who took up the work of ilm al and he inspired them and motivated them and used them and accepted them to support traditional, classical, true Akidah with the weapon of systematic argument using the same means of dialectic-proof argument, etc. by laying bare the confused doctrines invented by the heretics and variants for the toxic. This is the origin of Kalama Namutika In due course, the group of mutakallimun performed the task which Allah Khan invited them. They successfully preserved orthodoxy, defended the creed, received from the prophetic source, the Sunnah, and rectified their innovations. Nevertheless, in so doing, they based their arguments on premises which they took from their opponents. That I already explained to you. They said, well, your first principles, okay, we'll use that. And which they were compelled to admit by authority. Because those are rational. That's back to the akal. That's also something you accept by authority. Or the consensus of the community or because everybody agrees that something cannot exist and be non-existent at the same time. Or by bare acceptance of Quran and Hadith. What does that mean? Accepting the Quran and Hadith without feeling it. Accepting the Quran and Hadith without feeling it. Like I said, you accept the Qur'an of Allah without feeling it. For the most part their efforts were devoting to make explicit the contradictions of their opponents and criticizing them in respect of Allah I'm going fast because I want to It's enough detail for you at this part of the Kalama. I'm trying to move to the next section. This was, however, of little use in the case of one who admitted nothing at all, save logically necessary truths. In other words, Imam Zahid is telling that I believe in Allah and my faith in my uncle has been restored to me in the necessary truths. But beyond that, I don't believe in these Aristotelian methods. So theology was not adequate to my case, does says, and was unable to cure the malady of which I... the illness of which I had... It is true that when Inlo Kalam appeared as a recognized discipline and much effort had been expended in it over a considerable period of time, the scholars of Kalam, being coming very earnest, working very hard in their efforts to defend orthodoxy by the study of what things really are, embarked on a study of substances and accidents. This you don't have to really know about this. This is Jawahir and Awadah for those who are interested with their nature and properties. But since that was in their Zat and their Sifat, and what, but since that was not the aim of their science, they did not deal with the question during the thickening continent, results sufficient to spell universal directions, community, and of men, I do not exclude the possibility that for other than myself these results have been sufficient. This is a line I took. I do not exclude the possibility, listen to this now, I do not exclude the possibility that Ilmul Kalam, for other than me, other than Ghazali, it may be sufficient. So this is also his openness. That, look, Ilmul Kalam is not going to work for me as a tool for certainty. But maybe it can work for somebody else. So he's not trying to refute. He's not saying only me and my way is correct. He is open to plurality of ways of discovering that certainty. That maybe ilm al-kalam may work for someone else. But it's not, didn't work for me. In fact, even says, indeed, I do not doubt that this has been so for quite a number of people. That in fact, there are quite a number of scholars of kalam who through their activity of kalam, they came to that yakim. And the Wallace Fontana. Alright? Okay. My purpose here, however, is to describe my own case not to disparage those who sought a remedy thereby, for the healing medicine varies with the disease. How often one per- sick man's medicine pr- proves to be another's poison. Right? If you give chemotherapy to one person, that will cure them. You give that same chemotherapy to a person who doesn't have cancer, that will poison them. Right? That will poison them. Second philosophy, after I'd done with ilm al kalam I started on philosophy, because this was another widespread thing like I told you at this time. I was convinced that a man cannot grasp, a person cannot know what is faulty in any discipline of learning unless he has so complete a grasp of that discipline of learning that he equals the most learned exponents in the appreciation of the fundamental principle of learning. So before I can figure out what is true and false in philosophy, I have to know philosophy as well as the philosophers know philosophy. That's what he's saying. Same thing. Before I can figure out what's right and wrong in fiqh, I have to know fiqh as well as the fuqahano fiqh. Otherwise you can't do it. <laughs> you won't be able to do it. Oh, why don't I fast forward? To know what is right and wrong about the sawuf, I have to know the sawuf as well as the awliyaullah. Otherwise I won't be able to be able to tell what is right and wrong. I can accept on authority. That's another way. ghazali said, it's not allowed. I can accept on authority of ulama, authority of the ulama, of sharia, right? What is right and wrong. But on my own, I can't make that statement. To know what is against and what is allowed in sharia, you have to know sharia, become a scholar of sharia, right? That's why no bank is offering you to become their sharia-compliant supervisor. So what is compliant and what is non compliant? They have to get a person who is a Sharia scholar to do that. Hmm? We can accept it on authority. We can accept it on authority. Okay, your Sharia supervisor says it's compliant. We accept on their authority that it's compliant. We can't accept, ascertain that without knowledge ourselves. Alright? Okay. So, that means you can imagine what what he's about to do, he's going to study everything in philosophy. Now, let me summarize this a little bit as well. Uh, he's, what he's going to end up doing, that way if I give you the khulasah I can read fast. <laughs> right? Reminds me, huh? tha na us so what is he going to do? Very important, there's a widespread misconception in the West which has also actually polluted some young Muslims' minds that Ghazali is somewhat anti-rational, anti-philosophy so he's not worth our time anyway. <laughs> Imam Ghazali is not going to refute philosophical method nor does he refute philosophy itself. Hence he doesn't even call the about tahafatul he calls it the falsifa. It's a repetition of the philosophers, not of philosophy or philosophical method. He is going to refute certain conclusions of the philosophers, at which they then made those conclusions their beliefs. What he's going to do then is he's going to go through all of philosophy, and I'm going to have to do it a bit fast, and out of all of philosophy, and he's going to say natural sciences and metaphysical sciences and this sciences and that philosophy, He's going to say, and the same thing, he's going to read it, study it, and he's going to write books on it also. He's written a book called Maqasid, the Goals and Purposes of the philo- of, uh, of Philosophy. Of the Philosopher, Philosopher, of the Philosophers. But, out of all of philosophy, he's going to say that there are only 20 points, of the Philosophy of his time. Obviously, there are many other things that philosophers have done since his time. There are only 20 things that are problematic. Of those 20 things that are problematic, he says, even 17 of those 20 can keep a person within imam. They may be bida, they may be erroneous, they're astray, but the person will still remain a mu'min. So then out of all of philosophy, there are only, at his time, there are only three things, he says, that are unacceptable. And so when we come to that point, then I'll mention to you uh, what those three things are. All right. I'll just tell you right now what they are, so you know that number one, that the philosophers at that time felt that Allah Ta'ala knows universals, doesn't know particulars. He's almost thought Allah broadly created the universe and knows generally that there's humanity, but He doesn't know what each and every human being does and thinks all the time. So he said, no, that's not acceptable. We can't believe that. Second, the philosophers had a belief that the world is not created dunya is uncreated, is pre-eternal. The dunya has always been around. It's always existed. It's not makhluk, it's not created. He said this is also a problem. And the third thing, a bit more, but has to do with the resurrection of the body and ruh. So we'll explain that when, when he looks at those three things. So that means out of his entire study of all philosophy, he didn't have a problem with even one philosophical method, he only had a problem with three philosophical conclusions. How can you say that he struck the death knell of philosophy? Now, more recently, more mature, non-Muslim, Western scholarship has actually, all of the writings now say this, whether they're professors at Yale or Oxford, I'm thinking of two people right now in my head, they write this, that no, now we can say that I did not kill philosophy or philosophical thinking or rationality or intellectualism in the Muslim world through his writings. Okay? So I'm going to make that clear. Alright, now some of it will go over fast and some will go a bit slow. So far as I could see, none of the ulama of Islam had devoted thought and attention to philosophy. Right? Okay, now again, he's going to do it, he's not prescribing it. By the end of this, he's the whole purpose again, in the Arabah, says, I did it for you. So what does that mean? One alim can day. Not you, Malala, Malala, but one alim of today can go and study all these crazy things, postmodernism and this and that, but one is sufficient to do it, but he must be firm, like Imam Al Ghazali and sift what is right and wrong, and that's it. All the ulama don't need to do this. <laughs> all that, one alam should go into capitalism, one few, some few, should go into these things and sift the right and wrong. Not everyone needs to do this. Right? Okay. Here, but if none have done it yet, then that becomes a farda kifaya. That becomes an obligation on the community. So this is one, this is the part of the tajdi, the aspect of Imam Ghazali. The mujaddid is also that person who is that farda, the individual, who does the Fardi kifaya, who fulfills that communal obligation. So none of the ulama had yet, they weren't even reading Ibn Sina to be able to sift out and to identify to the common believers what was wrong in Ibn Sina. So Imam Zai takes this up. So, in the writings, none of the theologians engaged in polemic against the philosophers apart from obscure and scattered utterances, so pl- plainly erroneous and inconsistent, means logically inconsistent, that no person of even ordinary intelligence would be likely to be deceived by them, far less one versed in, Uloom, in, in in knowledge of thee. I realized that, so we're on the top of page seven, I realized that to refute a system before understanding it and becoming acquainted with its depths is to act blindly. Same thing I already told you before. That Imam Zayi said before. So you can put any system in here. To refute a system before understanding it and becoming acquainted with its depths is to act blindly. Now people will tell you the other way around. To believe in a system, not refute. To agree with a system is to act blindly. And they'll call you blind followers. No. That's not act blindly. That's called etimad. There are two paths in our deen, etimad or tahkik. You have two options, that's it. Nothing to do with this tahad, the glee, blind nothing. Two words you know in Arabic, etimad or "taqiq. If you want to do tahkik, you have to do what Imam Zahid does. <laughs> or otherwise you have to do etimad, you have to trust and depend on the research of others. So this is what Imam says. is saying. So means you, ha- you either agree on the basis of etimad or you can agree on the basis of tahkik or you can disagree on the basis of tahkik there's only one way to disagree, there are two ways to agree <laughs> that's the mercy of Deen. <laughs> there are two ways to agree and one way to disagree but what people want is that without tahkik you should disagree All right. so what does he do? so he's true to his method I therefore set out in all earnestness to acquire knowledge of philosophy from books. You cannot appreciate the mujahid that this must have taken. That man who has spent his youth reaching the highest level in his mid-30s now, the highest level of ilm of tafsir, shuru, hadith, for that person to go and read Ibn Sina, believe me, because we can just be a fraction of that, believe me as a mujahidah. <laughs> Even a person who has a drop of knowledge of Quran and Hadith after that is very difficult to stomach these things and to force yourself to read it entirely. So this is an incredible mujahid that Imam al Azhar made. So I set about in all earnestness to acquire knowledge of philosophy from books by a private study without the help of an instructor. And he's saying this about philosophy, not Quran. Why? Because he wanted that let me see philosophy as it is. I don't want any teacher to convince me of it or to refute it I want to let the philosophy speak for itself I want to understand it on its own terms I made progress towards this aim during my free hour free time after teaching the ulum al-islamia and writing so he's busy teaching Quran, Hadith, thick in Day. Writing articles on Quran, Hadith, thick, Sirah, Sunnah at night. And then in his leftover time quickly reading books of philosophy. I say, nay, descriptive, not prescriptive. In his free time, reading the books of philosophy. <laughs> Allah Akbar. Okay. I made progress. Okay. And he did this while he was teaching 300 students in Baghdad. Allah Akbar. That's a lot of students, and if you are such a conscientious teacher, as Imam Ghazali was throughout all this. Ajib still maintaining the highest level of hukukul ibad. Still lecturing, teaching, preparing, writing, interacting with them. Maintaining the highest level of professorial duties. And still doing this. So by my solitary reading during the hours thus snatched, Allah Allah brought me in slightly less than two years, two years, to a complete understanding of the knowledge of the philosophers. Thereafter, then I reflected for nearly one year on what I had learned. I thought of, I processed it in my mind. <laughs> Look at the mujayda. Look at the level of effort that he's making for the truth. <laughs> if you want to do it, do this. Don't think that I read a couple of articles on Islam in Miribat because <laughs> of the You want to do Taqi, Imam Allah, to show the world Taqiq and soon inshallah is going to show the world itamad also <laughs> oh who is worthy of itamad <laughs> right so one year to reflect on it going over it in my mind again and again probing its tangled depths until I comprehended surely and certainly how far it was deceitful means to what extent what is it in a philosophy that is deceitful and confusing, and to what extent in it, what is in philosophy that is true and is a representation of reality. Here now, an account of this discipline and of the achievement of the sciences it comprises. Alright, so this whole thing, we're not going to do free because this has a number of pages. First, he talks about the different branches of philosophy, right? Categories of philosophers, materialists, these are people today you could call biological philosophers, the ones who are studying matter. That's why materialists are not the well, it means the people who are studying matter. You can say the natural sciences today, chemistry, geology, etc., etc. Second group, or sorry, second group are naturalists. Materialists are the ones, the chemistry, and naturalists are the zoologists and botanists. All right? So materials, you can say, is physics and chemistry. Naturalists are the zoology and botany. All right. And he also gives a few lines mentioning about certain wonders. For example, that no one can make a careful study of anatomy and the wonderful uses of the different limbs and organs of the human body without attaining to the necessary knowledge that there is a perfection in the order which the framer, the creator, gave to the animal frame, and especially to that of man. So this is something that many people have also felt that when you really go deep into the science of creation, you will discover the signs of the creator. And this is something Allah said in Qur'an, that do not reflect on the ayat, on the signs of the Creator in the creation of the Creator. <laughs> However, now I can read this a bit. Okay, you can't see what I... am How good is Amul Muhtar? It's good. Yet these philosophers, immersed in their researches into nature, take the view... Oh, this is another thing. This I don't want to do for This an equilibrium thing. This, has, this is something related to the hikmat that you have as well. Alright. What happened to them? let's put it this way, I'll summarize this, that they got so into looking at creation other than humanity that they started doing chaos. So let's say a person studies animals, they see in front of them animals die, and they know that animal, that lion will never come back to life. They see that plants die, they know that plant will never come back to life. So they saw such a vast diversity of creation, the totality of which was this, that they die and they're never resurrected. So because of that, it became harder for them to think. That human beings die and are resurrected. In today's term you can say evolution, that they saw a vast diversity of creation, the totality of which did evolve through evolution, then it became difficult for them to accept that humanity is the sole creation that didn't evolve through evolution. So he's actually also showing how they went astray. <laughs> how they went astray. Okay, so it is unthinkable in their opinion that the non existent should return to existence. Thus, it is their view that the soul dies and does not return to life, and they started to deny Akhira. Okay? Obviously, there's no proof for denial of Akhira in zoology and botany and anatomy, but he's showing that that knowledge led them to false conclusions, but it wasn't the philosophical method, not the philosophy of botany itself, it's the conclusions that humans in this discipline were led to. So it's not a reputation of the science of botany or zoology. It's a repetition of the conclusions that individual philosophers came. Third group, the theists. Alright. So, theists are basically, he's looking at those, Socrates and Plato, those who were influenced by them, Ibn Sina and Al-Farabi. This is where he's really going to talk about uh, Ibn Sina and Al-Farabi. Alright. The theists in general attacked the two previous groups because the theists weren't atheists. They were theists. They did believe in a creator. Whereas the first two were led to disbelieved in the Creator because they were overly obsessed and engaged with creation. Okay, then he talks about Ibn Sina and Al-Farabi in the way that they transmitted the philosophy of Aristotle. And he says something interesting that none of the Islamic philosophers has accomplished anything comparable to the achievements of the two men named. Means it also shows his integrity, like, honesty, he's not out to bash Ibn Sina. He's acknowledging that Ibn Sina and Al Farabi's massive effort to understand Plato and Aristotle in the original and then translate and explain that in Arabic is phenomenal. He came to the conclusion after his three years' study. And he's he's giving them credit for the academic prowess and skill of their activity. So it's not jabbing, it's not snipe, right? Okay. And the translations of others are marked by disorder and confusion. It means other than Ibn Sina al-Farabi, other people in the Arab-speaking world who tried to do this, they didn't get it right. They didn't properly understand and transmit that philosophy. Okay. All that in our view, all that in our view, all that in Ghazali's view, that is generally the philosophy of Aristotle, as these al-Farabi and Ibn Sina have transmitted it, falls under three categories. One, that much, which must be viewed as unbelief. Those are the three things. Two, those things that would be counted as, you can, it should be such a heretical innovation. I mean, within belief, but is a heretical innovation. Those are 17 things. And three, all of the rest of the 20 should not be denied at all, should be accepted as truth. So actually, if you look at it this way, you could say, Imam Ghazali is a champion of erstatunan philosophy that other than 20 things, he's saying the entirety of it is true. That's another way to look at it, right? Which means, actually is the vast majority of it. So let us proceed to the details. So what is fine mathematics. So we can just skip over that, right? Notwithstanding all the Majid being interested at this point, but we will skip over that. And mathematics basically is true. However, however, all right, You have to see... This aspect of it. I have to show you this. This is very important for today. (laughs) Nevertheless, there are two drawbacks which arise from mathematics. Two drawbacks which arise from mathematics. The first is that every student of mathematics, and you could even insert another field here, admires its precision and the clarity of its demonstrations. This leads him to believe in the philosophers, because Ibn Sina al-Farabi also use mathematical arguments. So because he loves math, he will be more comfortable with those who use mathematical arguments, and to think that all their sciences resemble math and clarity. Whereas no, math is something, and the other types of philosophy are something else. Further, he has already heard the accounts on everyone's lips of their unbelief. He has already heard that all these philosophers, they don't believe, or they deny the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or they have contempt for revelation, Wahy, for Quran and sunnah. So he becomes an unbeliever merely by accepting those mathematicians or philosophers as authority. So this is the wrong type of itamad. Because he's so impressed with math, and he has a math teacher who is an atheist, he becomes an atheist whereas the math teacher's atheism has nothing to do with math. Now you understand? Look what Raza and is writing 900 years ago is exactly what happens in certain sectors of Center for Advanced Studies and LGS and Nixer. Not all of them, but few such atheistic teachers that students get impressed with them because of their knowledge of their field. And then they adopt that their atheism has nothing to do with the knowledge of their field. (laughs) Right? This is what he says, and says to himself that if religion were true it would not have escaped the notice of these men since they are so precise. The people say this again. If Islam was really true then these people are so intelligent they would also accept. <laughs> That's what people say. If Islam was really true then this teacher of mine, this professor is so brilliant, who is such an expert. Look at those thinks. amazing. Even Mujahidah that. And even the fact that five, 6 translations exist. The fact that me and you right now in 2013 are looking at this text. Is living kabulia of Imam Ghazanat is living tajdeed of Imam Ghazanat. Not just tajdeed of that century. Tajdeed of 900 years running. Continual legacy of tajdeed. Same issue today. So he thinks that if religion, deen, Islam were true it wouldn't have escaped the notice of these scientists. That these scientists aren't Believers. And they're brilliant people. Hmm? So he draws the conclusion that the truth is that what is true is to deny and reject religion. How many have I seen who err from the truth because of this high opinion of the philosophers and I'm adding in scientists and without any other basis whatsoever. They cannot prove atheism. They just do it because they're impressed by the scientists who are atheists. Again, someone may argue, the man who excels in one art does not necessarily excel in every field. It is not necessary that the man who excels in law and theology should excel in medicine, nor that the man who is ignorant of intellectual speculations, philosophy, should be ignorant of grammar. Rather, every field discipline of knowledge, art, has people who have obtained excellence and preeminence in it, even though stupidity and ignorance may characterize them in other arts. Right? So the mathematician may be completely ignorant about even within science about botany, about plants, the person who knows botany may not know anything about literary devices and poetry. Right? So the point again he says that the arguments in elementary matters and mathematics are demonstrative, whereas those in metaphysics are based on conjecture. Alright. So if such a person is fixed in this belief, which he has chosen out of respect for authority of his teacher, professor who is atheist, he is not moved by this argument but is instead carried by the strength of passion, love of vanity, and the desire to be thought clever. The desire to be thought clever. That he's intelligent, and I'll pattern myself after him, therefore I can also view myself as intelligent. The scientists are brilliant. They're atheists, so I'll make myself alien, that, atheist, that way, so I can view myself as brilliant. But their brilliance wasn't in their atheism, their brilliance was in their physics. What? <laughs> what? How did you become brilliant by copying their atheism? <laughs> when their brilliance was actually their true brilliance was due to their physics. <laughs> they said, oh, but so many Nobel Prize winners in science are atheists. <laughs> oh, Hukmar. That's because they don't know anything about Wahy, they don't know anything about Nabuwa, they don't know anything about Quran. <laughs> They're not Nobel Prize winners in Wahy, and then refuted choosing it. They didn't understand and reject it. They don't understand it. They don't understand it. So he says that this is a great drawback. And because of it, those who devote themselves eagerly to the mathematical sciences ought to be restrained. (fair) Here, this is Imam Uzziah saying, no, there may be ways to restrain them. Restrain could mean, don't let them study it. It could also be put the armor coding, restraints of Quran and Sunnah on them, and then let them study it. Right? And this is a problem, by the way, today. That if the parents of Defense and Clifton and etc. don't give their children the real deep understanding of Deen, and then those children get exposed to very proficient, brilliant mathematicians, philosophers who are atheists, then there's a chance there. There's a chance that exactly what Imam al said happened in his time will happen in our time. So even if their subject matter is not relevant to religion, since they belong to the foundations of the philosophical science, which is fascinating. Shows you how Mahmoud Ali really understood mathematics. today this is what the academy says, that math is the asl. Pure mathematics is the asl of everything. That's why Ayaz wants to do a PhD in pure math. Because <laughs> this the You understood this 900 years ago? Hmm? The student is infected with the evil and corruption of the philosophers. Few are they who devote themselves to this study without being stripped of religion and having the bridle of godly fear, taqwa, removed from them. Second drawback arises from the man who is loyal to Islam, is a passionate believer, but is ignorant of math. So he thinks that deen must be defended by rejecting every science connected with the philosophers. That to be deen should be you should reject physics, reject chemistry, reject math, etc., and so he rejects all of their sciences and accuses them of ignorance. He even rejects their theory of the eclipse of the sun and the moon. It's he, rege- uh, giving, he rejects that the earth moves, he rejects this and that, right? So when that view is attacked, someone who hears it, who has knowledge of such matters by obedient demonstration, he does not doubt his demonstration, but believing that Islam is based on ignorance and the do- denial of obedient proof grows in love for falsehood and hatred for Islam. Let me show you. Islam is fine with every type of evolution except for human evolution. But there may be a person who is a passionate believer who feels that no, the way to defend Islam is to say, all evolution is wrong. So an average biology student if he hears that the ulama are saying all evolution is wrong, and as a person who has knowledge of biology knows that plants have evolved, animals have evolved, so they know for sure that what the alam is saying is wrong, then he gets badzan of the alam, then he thinks that the deen must be wrong that what this person who has ilm of deen, if he's saying this, then that deen which he has ilm of must be wrong. That's what Ghazali said. Now you understand? It also shows that Imam Ghazali is saying, don't do this. And I will say this publicly, because Perdeus Hudboy in his book on Islam and Science takes Ghazali's name, and says Ghazali is against science and philosophy and rationality. Where, in fact, Ghazali is, in writing, refuting such an attitude that don't be, have a wholesale attitude of rejection towards science, rational and philosophy. So, Purveshumboy has either lied deliberately, deliberate misrepresentation, or he spoke out of ignorance. Neither of which is acceptable from somebody who is a PhD scholar. Both, either way, should be blamed and censored and reprimanded. Yes. Okay. Alright. So, a grievous crime indeed against deen has been committed by that person who imagines that Islam is defended by the denial of mathematical sciences or other types of sciences. Alright? In fact, Sayyidina Rasulullah said, the sun and the moon are two of the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They are not eclipsed for anyone's death nor for his life. If you see such an event, take refuge in the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and in Salah." means it is a manifestation of the majesty of Allah subhanahu What does it mean? Oh, I just explain this also, since we did the hadith, right? You see, what is the day of judgment? The day of judgment is khalafi waqya, that the whole earth will be folded up. It's not normally what happens. Normally the 24 hours continue, and the months continue, the years continue, the planets keep orbiting. The day of judgment, all of that, that whole nizam will be plugged, pulled. So when in the sky you see an eclipse, you are seeing an event that is against the norm. And that's supposed to make you remember that ultimate cataclysmic event and day where it will be completely against the norm. And it's supposed to, fear to have fear of Allah SWT. So this hadith has nothing to do with rejecting the scientific explanation of how eclipse takes place. It's not saying that. It's nothing for us to be mocked about. Right? This is talking about the spiritual feeling a person should feel in their heart when this scientific phenomenon of an eclipse happens. So here this is the drama to mathematics. Logic. uh oh. Where did it go? Logic. Now just this one line this is one line somebody needs to email Pravesman but Imam Ghazali is completely and totally against logic let's let Imam Ghazali speak for himself right Imam Ghazali writes nothing in logic is relevant to deen by the way of denial or affirmation means as far as Shri is concerned there is nothing of logic that we will deny and as far as Shri is concerned there is nothing of logic we will necessarily affirm what does it mean? Logic is the study of the methods of demonstration. Now he goes into this tasar and tazik, you don't want to go into that right now. But let's just say that there's nothing here which reco- there's nothing line ninety four or there's nothing here which requires to be denied. Matters of this kind, certain logical proofs and demonstration are actually mentioned by the ulama al Mukalah. The philosophers differ from these only in their expressions and technical terms that they employ, but a lot of it is accepted by them. same way that he says the same problem is that if such a denial is made, if somebody denies logic, the only effect upon the people who are studying logic is to impair their belief in the intelligence of the man who made the denial. And they will view that all the people who follow Deen are unintelligent. Therefore, Deen is for unintelligent, and Bid'een is for the intelligent. And because they view themselves as intelligent, they will go for the option of Bid'een. Same problem that came in mathematics. So quite clear, Maaz Things don't have blank and condemnation of math, of logic, of science, of rationality, of philosophical method. And he's saying it over and over and over again, so clearly, so repeatedly, that we cannot accept that somebody says, I didn't know. We can't accept it, because he well have laid it out and it's available in five English translations if you don't know Arabic. It's available in Urdu, if you don't know English. Alright? Natural science or physics. Here, fair, there's no particular issue here, except for one. First, let me make some here. Just as it is not a condition of religion to reject medical science, so likewise the... So just like it's not a condition of religion to reject medical science, so likewise the rejection of natural science is not one of his conditions. He's so clear about what he's writing. Mehaz Ilzam il has been applied to Imam that he says that you should reject science and he's responsible for taking science out of Muslim history. Okay, except with regard to particular points which I enumerate. Those 20 points which he enumerates in this book. Right? Three of them we're going to do, because those are the more three important ones. Theology or metaphysics. Now, this is an issue. Obviously, this is that branch of philosophy that is a rival to Quran and Sunnah. Right? Here occur most of the errors of the philosopher. They're unable to satisfy the conditions of proof they lay down in logic. And constantly differ much from one another here. So that's the first thing, that they themselves are illogical. Remember, refute them on their own terms. The views of Aristotle, as by al and Messina, are close to those of the Islamic writers. Close. All these errors are comprised under twenty. This I told you. Three of which, they, if they have three of them, will result in them being outside belief unbelievers. And seventeen, they will remain believers, but on heretical innovation. It was to show the falsity of these 20 views, the, the views of philosophers. Not to show the falsity of philosophy. Not to show the philosoph- falsity of philosoph- philosophical methods. It was to show the falsity of the, the philosophers' views on these 20 points that I composed the Habits Philosopher. So he's says, like, that's something he wrote much earlier. He wrote much earlier. The three points in which they are outside iman. just three things in all of philosophy. Number one, they say that for bodies there is no resurrection. So this one I didn't, I said I would do it now. Bodily resurrection. They say that it's just the ruh. This actually, you see, it's complicated, but this whole neoplatonic Christian philosophy was that there's seven intellects, the higher intellect, and for them it wasn't even ruah, it was more like this intellectual aspect that will continually live. Alright? So, Ibn you al Frabi we were trying to mix that with Islam. So I so said, where do we find this concept of aql faal or active intellect? So we can call that the ru, we can call that the angels. They came up with different ways to try to map Greek philosophy onto Islam. Alright? And one of the consequences of that is that they denied bodily resurrection. It means that you won't have a jism in akhirah, And that because there's so many clear textual sources from Quran and Hadith that establish that there is bodily resurrection, so this is something that we can't accept. In his book, okay, in, the, in B, second, that they say Allah Ta'ala knows universals, not particulars. This too is plain unbelief, because Allah Ta'ala are many eyes, but this in just to one eye, Allah says not, that there does not escape him the weight of an atom in the heavens or the earth, means every juz right down to every particular particular is in the knowledge of Allah SWT. So we can't accept this belief. And third, they say that the world is everlasting, without beginning. And no Muslim has adopted any such feeling this question. So it's just three points. Tell me, are any of these three things required to win a Nobel Prize in physics? The claim is made that because of Ghazali, Contemporary science does not exist on the Muslims. Do you need any of these three things? Go to interview any Nobel Prize winner in physics and chemistry, and ask them: Did in your research, did it make a difference whether Allah knows universal, and Allah knows particulars or not? He said, what, talk- "What are you talking about? <laughs> that has nothing to do with my science." He said, "Okay, what about does the world always existed?" He'll say, no, my science says the world has a beginning. I say, that, that, that is going to go against my science. I believe in Big Bang. <laughs> He'll be with us on that one. He'll say, B has no effect on science. He'll say, C I'm with Ghazali on that one. <laughs> Every Nobel Prize winner will be with Ghazali on point number C. If you ask him about point A, is there a bodily resurrection? If you believed in bodily resurrection, would that have impaired your research? He'll say, that's a completely separate thing. That has nothing to do with my Nobel Prize. Hmm? Allah this is just empty sloganeering. That the reason we don't have Nobel Prizes and scientists in this world, in the Muslim world, is because Imam Ghazali killed scientific thought in Muslim history. La hawla wa la quwata illa He just tried to kill these three things. Accept it. He's just saying it, and we accept it. Imam al Ghazali wanted these three things to be finished. These three are beliefs metaphysical philosophical beliefs that have no impact on science alright ok then on the further points here he mentions another book of his which I told you he has talked about that as well in, in politics very quickly uh, all their discussion of this is based on consideration of world and governmental advantages. This is one of the most famous aspects of Plato and Aristotle and the Republic and Aristotle's politics, or political philosophy. He doesn't seem to have much of a problem with that. and In fact, suggests, interestingly, that they must have also gotten those ideas from some prophet or some scripture that they had access to. Ethics. Their whole discussion of ethics consists in defining the characteristics and moral constitution of the soul. All right. Here, this they borrow from the teachings of the people of the So, he suggested that the people who are really... And people have written that by the history of ethics, that a lot of secular ethics can trace its origin to Christian ethics. And what Protestant ethics is, and the monks' ethics is, and the codes were... That's what today people call secular ethics. So, that's something even accepted by the academy. However, there is a problem. So, what happens here is the philosophers... He's talking about Muslim philosophers here, right? And this is... Ikhwan al-Safa, the Brethren of Purity, they had these moral philosophies. Okay? So he says, the Muslim philosophers, there's a problem. That they take some things from Quran, Sunnah, from the teachings of the Prophets, and from the people of the Sobhav. But then they also add some things from Plato and Aristotle's morality. So he said there's a problem. Two evil tendencies. One, the evil tendency in the case of the opponents, the person who is against moral philosophy and ethics. That's a problem because a crowd of men of slight intellect imagines that since those ethical conceptions occur in the books of the philosophers mixed with their own rubbish all reference to them must be avoided. And actually Imam Zayi himself was critiqued for this. In his Eyalim al-Din where he's explaining certain things of Deen sometimes he uses examples of the lion and the deer and the serpent which are actually cut and paste and he acknowledges it that he took from the works of Greek moral philosophy. And then people get upset with him and say Imam Ghazali is following Greek philosophy So, Imam Zai's answer would be exactly this, that no, but what he borrowed from Greek philosophy were certain examples, metaphors, concepts that are completely Sharia compliant, that aren't against the deen. That the deen also views them to be true. Right? That the deen also views them to be true. So, there's no guilt by association. Right? If a Muslim says to you, thou shalt not murder, it's correct according to deen. So you cannot say, oh, he's bringing the Ten Commandments and he's become a Christian or a Jew and he's left Islam. That's ridiculous, right? So Imam al has not left Islam for Greek philosophy, but he says sometimes some of the things that the Greek philosopher. Why did he do that, by the way? People say, no, no, but still Imam Ghazali shouldn't have done that. Did the Prophet of ever do that? Is there some nooks in the Hadith? Is the Hadith and Quran lacking that he needed to use Greek philosophy? No, he didn't do that say that because he thought Karnadis were lacking, he was reaching out. He was doing Dawa to those moral philosophers who believe in Greek philosophy and yet have to believe in Karnadis. He was showing them that So I'll show you both in Eyalumuddin. People don't understand why he was doing it. And again, this is just ilzam. Assuming the worst of intention on his part that he found the Quran and that insufficient to explain the concept of suburb and therefore he had to dig deep into Greek philosophy. He didn't find it insufficient. But he wanted to show the rough... He wanted, this, is, this is what today people call uh, uh, human, uh, pluralism. He's in interfaith dialogue. He wanted to show that things in the Greek tradition are the same in Islamic tradition. He wanted to show that. Today people celebrate that. Right? He wanted to show the commonalities. He wasn't thinking that Islam is not this and you need Greek philosophy to complete your understanding of morality. All of these are just attacks. Right? Certain Salafis and people who claim and call themselves Salafis, they attack Imam Ghazali for this reason. The whole of it, he was talking to a particular audience. <laughs> Today when you talk to somebody, when you're doing Dawah, you have to talk to them according to their level, their language, their understanding. trying to show them, build some common ground. That's all Imam Ghazali was doing alright so this is one evil that those who are opponents of it they throw out the good in it because they see the bad in it alright that's sim- simply what he says right uh, and then uh, so he says this is like a man who is a Christian assert there is no God but God and Jesus is the messenger so he says Jesus is a prophet of God so the person rejects this saying this is a Christian concept no but actually this is true there is no God but Allah and saying he is a prophet these two statements in and of itself are true. Right? So it is customary with weaker intellects thus to take the men as criterion of the truth and not the truth as the criterion of the men. So he's actually arguing against what? That he's saying here, literally, because it's an affectional philosophy, just because Aristotle said it, doesn't mean it's wrong. That's what Lozali is saying. How much more honest can you get? He's saying, don't say it's wrong just because Aristotle said it. Look at it and see, is it true or false according to Deen? And there are many things that they said that are actually true according to me. Alright? An intelligent person follows Sayyidina Ali al said that do not know the truth by men but know the truth and you will know who are the truthful. So they are still Rijal. There is still Rijal there. You know the truth and you will know who are truthful. Siddiqin. What is Sid, Quran and Sunnah? Know the Sid, you will know Siddiqin. You still have to know the Siddiqin. Then did didn't say just know the truth, you don't need to know the truthful. You need to know the truthful. <laughs> but you'll know the truth by knowing the truth. Alright. Tell so keep I can skip over this, skip over this, skip over this. Next part. the majority of people I that I maintain are dominated by high opinion of their own skill and accomplishments. meri mirirai, mera nukta, meri soch, mera point, Teji. Huh? Love. What? what does it mean? That they're dominant by hip- their own skill and accomplishments, especially the perfection of their own intellect for distinguishing true from false and sure guidance from misleading suggestion. It is therefore necessary, Imam Zahra said, that I maintain to shut the gate so as to keep the general public from reading the books of the misguided as far as possible. That was his view. Right? What does he mean? That I read Ibn Sina. He's talking about Ibn Sina here. I read Ibn Sina's I was able to figure out what was right or wrong. But an ordinary Muslim reads Ibn Sina won't be able to figure that out. Won't be able to tell what in it is true and what is misguidance. So he feels people shouldn't read Ibn Sina. But again, he's not saying, out of he's saying as somebody who read it. Somebody who read it and understood it that the harm in it is greater than the good. This is a principle that Allah mentions in Quran. One of the ayahs about alcohol, one of the stages was this, that the harm in it is greater than the good. Right? And that's what Quran or Deen teaches us, that if that's the case, then we should leave it. We should simply leave it. We should do things that have only good, or at the very least, the good in it is greater than the harm. All right? So here is then his response to something in the bottom of 11. To some of the statements made in our published work on Ahya'ul-Mudin, some men raise this objection because their understanding has not fully grasped the sciences and they don't realize it if I said something that Aristotle said it. Just because Aristotle said it doesn't mean it's against the deen. So he's clarifying that in this work as well. All right? Okay, they think that these statements are taken from the works of the ancient philosophers, whereas the fact that some of them are the product of reflections occurred to me independently, some came from revealed scriptures, and some of it came from the works of the people of the Souf, who themselves, he says, the philosopher's quote. Suppose, however, that the statements are found only in the philosopher's books. If they are reasonable in themselves and supported by proof, and if they do not contradict the book and Sunnah, then it is not necessary to abstain from using them. Very important point, top of 12. This can be for all of science, all of economics all of mathematics, all of literature, everything. That if it is reasonable in itself, that that shows also use of aql. You can say Malzah against aql. First thing he says, if it's not khilafi aql, and it's not khilafi Qur'an, and it's not khilafi sunnah, go ahead. And a lot of science falls in that category. Alright? A lot of philosophy even falls in that category. A lot of classical philosophy falls in that category. How, and he says, if we open this door that will leave something, if we find a philosopher said it, then we should be obliged to leave aside a great number of verses of the Qur'an. Because there are things that said in the Qur'an that other people have also said. Right? Like, you shouldn't murder. A secular atheist will tell you today, you shouldn't murder. Are you going to leave it now because a secular atheist said that? Then you'll have to leave certain things in the Qur'an and Hadith. That's what he also saying. The lowest degree of education is to distinguish oneself from the ignorant ordinary man. The educated man does not loathe honey even if he finds it in the surgeon's cupping glass. He realizes that the cupping glass does not essentially alter the honey. What does it mean? That honey was the antiseptic and disinfectant of the time. So it was used to clean the the cupping glass. So the person who sees it, oh I'm never going to eat honey again. Why? Because they're using it to wipe away the blood or the germs or whatever on the glass. And the intelligent person knows that there's no guilt by association. Honey does not become germed because it's used to remove germs and take the germs out of the glass. Right? So, again, this is a multi-style explaining bias example. Yet, this is the prevalent idea amongst the majority of men. All right. Then there's a wrong tendency towards accepting philosophy. When a man looks into the books such as the Brethren of Purity and others and sees how mingled with their own teachings are the sayings of the Anbiya, the sayings of the people of the soul, which he knows are right, then he accepts everything, the bad in it and the good in it. You shouldn't do that either. So don't reject everything in it. Don't reject the good in it because you're rejecting the bad in it. Here he's saying don't accept the bad in it because you accepted the good in it. So in other words, there should not be wholesale rejection or wholesale acceptance. Everything has to be judged in light of the Deen and Sharia. All right, that's simple. Because of these tendencies and from in the books, so this was a thing that there's danger. Just like the poor swimmer must be kept from the slippery banks, so must humanity be kept from reading these books. Another reason is that because the good that is in them can be found elsewhere in sources in which there is no bad in it. All right, okay. Pairs we can skip over some of this. Alright. Now next is the danger of Tatlim. So here I'm actually gonna skip this entire section. Because I think for present company you don't actually need Imam for his explanation as to why the belief of this particular sect of Islam is not going to bring you to the truth. Alright? So because we're running short on time and running a bit behind schedule I'm going to skip all of that. So that would bring us over here to... I'll just give you a very, maybe, a brief summary so we don't, maybe, uh, skip it entirely. And that is, uh, very simply speaking, you know, it's this whole notion of the infallibility of the Imam. Basically, that's where Imam Mazali concentrates his discussion. And that the infallibility of the Imam... For Imam Ghazali is not something that Allah Ta'ala is going to put a nur into your breast about, nor is it something that you can prove through your akal. So he cannot accept, he says, I don't accept this notion of the infallibility of the Imam. Alright? That's the major way he goes about uh, doing this. Alright? Uh, and also because another way you can simply understand within the context is, memory Imam Huzali says, I have to leave this taklid in Akidah. When you do taklid of an Imam, we're not talking about Imam, Bukhari, Imam. We're not talking about Imams of Hadith and Fiqh. The Shi'i concept of Imam is something different. That's your Imam in creed. And you have to accept on authority whatever belief he tells you to believe. So Imam does all his whole system up till now. So he's actually just been consistent. There's not even, strictly speaking, there's no anti-Shi'i bias here. He's being true to his method. He has said over and over again, and you've seen it, he will not do Teklid when it comes to the area of Akidah. And the concept of taking your ikhidah from an infallible imam is saying precisely that, that the only way you will get akida through taklid. Through blind acceptance from authority in matters of ikhidah. Remember, the way the word taklid is used in fiqh is totally different. That is following qualified competent scholarship. The way the word taklid is used in the field of akida is totally different. So because he doesn't accept taklid in the area of imam, he cannot accept doing taklid of an imam. Alright, so two issues here. The infallibility aspect and the glee aspect, that's basically the khulasa of all of this. So that brings us then now to the bottom of page 17, which is category number 4, which is the way of the path of the sawuf. So that we will then begin, inshallah, with the next session. And now you will have a well-earned and well-deserved huh, meal, inshallah. But you should eat a moderate amount because if you eat as hungry as you are by now, then you will be very sleepy when I get you back. Yes.